Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh says, smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. Welcome back to Care with Korak. I'm really glad you're here. Hope everyone's having a great week. Uh, today we are joined uh, by a very unique guest, a little bit different from some of the mental health professionals and, and guests I have on my podcast this time. Uh, I'm joined by Dr. Joseph E. Davis. Dr. Davis is a research professor of sociology and director of the Picturing the Human Project of the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. Professor Davis's research explores the intersecting questions of self, morality, and cultural change. In studies of medicine, psychiatry, work, AI, aging, social movements, and other fields, he has examined trauma psychology, narratives of suffering, the rise of biological explanations of mental life, medicalization, psychoactive drug use, and our cultural dreams of technological mastery. Whew. Good stuff. Uh, He is the author or editor of several books, including most recently, Chemically Imbalanced, Everyday Suffering, Medication, and Our Troubled Quest for Self-Mastery, which came out in 2020, The Evening of Life, The Challenges of Aging and Dying Well, which also came out in 2020, and To Fix or to Heal, Patient Care, Public Health, and the Limits of Biomedicine. His articles have appeared in many journals, peer-reviewed and popular. He is a former editor of the Hedgehog Review and writes a Psychology Today blog called Our New Discontents, Reflections on Mental Health and the Social Ideals. Currently, he is at work co-editing a special issue of Culture, Medicine, and Psychiatry on, quote, being human in the age of the brain, models of mind, and their social effects, end quote, as well as two book projects, The Troubles of Youth and An Essay on Human Misunderstanding. In this episode, Dr. Davis and I discuss the role of medications and mental health from a sociological context, whether groupings such as diagnoses limit us or help us as a society, and how mental health treatment has evolved over the years in the way that we understand it, and so much more. For more information on Dr. Davis, check out his profile uh, in the link in the bio. Make sure to check out his most recent book, Chemically Imbalanced. Follow me at Josh Korak on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube for video clips, podcast previews, and more mental health content. If you are in a mental health crisis, please call 988 or go to your nearest emergency room. If you are from Colorado and are interested in scheduling a session with me, please reach out at sojourncounselingco.com slash josh. That's my website. Or email me josh at sojourncounselingco.com. All right, I think that just about does it. Let's not waste any more time and get into it. This is Care with Korak with Dr. Joseph Davis. All right, hey, 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 Dr. Davis, welcome to Care with Korak. 
Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> hey, well, I really appreciate appreciate you taking your time out of your day and your busy schedule to take some time to talk with me and my audience and share a little bit about um, all the stuff that you've been working on. It's been super fascinating reading up on some of the work you've been doing. Could you just share a little bit about who you are, what you do, um, some of the research you've been going at after, you know, for the past couple of years now? Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Um, so just professionally, I'm a, I'm a research professor of sociology here at the University of Virginia, um, as well as uh, director of something called the Picturing the Human Working Group um, at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, which is a part of UVA. Um, and uh, so in um, so as a research professor, I do a lot of research <laughs> uh, and, and rather than much teaching, um, although I direct seminars here at our institute, um, but those are primarily for uh, graduate students and postdocs and mm. Um, and visiting professors, so they're not they're not really for undergraduates. Um, I used to teach more, but now I I do teach an annual course in the January term called Prozac Culture. Um, that might be interesting. Worth, might be worth talking about. Yeah, um, uh, picturing the human, um, um, which is really kind of what all my research is about, is sort of understandings of human persons and how those are changing and how those are being rethought in various institutions um, and practices. And, um, and so our, our working group, we've done a series of conferences. We, uh, we did a book um, that published in 20, 2020 called The Evening of Life, The Challenges of Aging and Dying Well, mm. um, which is about the aging process. We just, a new issue of, of the journal Culture, Medicine and Psychiatry, um, which, uh, published the papers from our conference in 20, okay, I'm losing track of my years, in 2020, right before the pandemic actually um, started. Um, and that was called Being Human in the Age of the Brain. Um, and that was mostly focused on questions about kind of the image of the person or the picture of the person um, in neuroscience um, and so on. So we've done related projects on AI and various other kinds of things. Um, and really all my research now for 25 years has been really concerned with the human person um, in work mm -hmm. and in, uh, in psychiatry and school and family um, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so ways in which we understand who we are and what we're, uh, what we're made of, so to speak. And, um, and then kind of how that's refracted through different institutions, um, the sociological, um, I'm not a, sociology doesn't really have a concept of the person, I would say. Um, hmm. So the, the discipline, it, it, it tends to view everybody as more or less kind of socially determined. Um, you don't really study persons, you study environments. Right. So it's, like a, it's like an environmental view, or, a, or a, not environmental, but a, a kind of evolutionary view, right? It's mm -hmm. environments that change. And then the species within the environment then change because the environment right. and you, you don't study the species, you study the environment. The mm. sociology is kind of like that. So I'm a, I'm, it's a kind of odd area to be in in sociology. So a lot of my thinking about persons is only comes from philosophy, not from, not from sociology, but sociology could, because you get a real sense for context, history and context um, that 
right? How we think about ourselves. It's not something we just make up individually, but right. it comes to us from a collective process. And, and, um, and so that's really what I study in, again, in different institutions and um, so on. Um, yeah, that's super fascinating. I mean, yeah. just coming at it from a more philosophical standpoint. I mean, you know, that I feel like to a certain extent that's inherent with fields like, so, you know, sociology, psychology, um, even more medical related fields, I'm sure. But uh, but you're right. I mean, with sociology, it tends to be more of focusing on the environment, you know, people within their environment. So it's it's interesting that you come at it from more of a philosophical approach of, of what's going on right um yeah. asking a lot and, of those and, why questions and, and try to appreciate the fact that persons are free right so we're not mm. we're, we're there are a lot of social patterns um but we're not ultimately determined right and the the sociological doesn't give a lot of room for human agency it kind of says it does but then in practice mm. in practice all explanation is more or less what were the social factors and yeah. And that seems to me um, a kind of mistake and a philosophical mistake. And so trying to kind of bring human freedom back into the picture means hmm. attending to persons and attending the way that they resist, as well as accommodate various kinds of social change and so on. Yeah. Um, it's not the case that everybody just does does things, right? They they, they do resist. And, and I, I take some hope in that because it seems hmm. to me like a lot of the trends that I see, I think are bad so yeah so hoping well, people can resist them right well it, it kind of speaks to things such as you know addiction or trauma right where we're not determined by the past um you know experiences that maybe our parents have had or um you know we think of things like there's there's a lot of clients I'll meet with who are really afraid of becoming alcoholics because maybe their dad was an alcoholic and sure there may be that genetic predisposition but like what I'm hearing you say at least it sounds like you know we are not determined to follow in that same path we don't have to have that same social pattern right right yeah exactly exactly and uh, anyway and I, I think that's important always to to, to, yeah. to affirm and, and when i doing research, um, a lot of my research has been started with ordinary people. Um, you know, I'm working on a project now, I'm calling the Troubles of Youth, and it begins with interviews with young people and how they understand their own circumstances, their own distress, um, mm. and so on, rather than something top down, that their, their problems reflect something else or something from above, like how do they themselves understand their experience and so on. And, right. And um, so it's, you know, so kind of starting with persons and then thinking about the larger rather than, mm. you know, in some sense, the other way around. Um, yeah. Seeing people always, you know, always being shaped by something else, something over them, above them, their parents, you know, whatever the case might be. Right. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It, it kind of makes me make that connection to, I was reading a couple of your articles, like I had mentioned before, and... I think it was the one about you're, you're writing a lot about some of the statistics out there around um, adolescence and mental health. And I think you're reporting some somewhere between like 10 to 20 percent of teens in 2019 were, were diagnosed with depression, anxiety, were struggling with suicidal ideation and things like that. And 
um, if, if I remember correctly, if I was reading the article right, it, you were almost expressing some frustration of like, okay, we have all these statistics now, like the statistics are there, but what are we doing with that, right? We're forgetting the individual experiences that can come with that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some of that in what you were just saying. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I fear, and again, that we, um, and, you know, again, this is, I'm not a mental health professional, um, so I'm slightly somewhat unsympathetic <laughs> to features of it, including the, the desire to kind of label people, mm. put them into categories. And I understand why you might do that. So I'm, I'm not anti-diagnosis or sure. anything like that. But from a sociological point of view, um, you know, these these groupings don't don't strike me as very helpful for understanding if you understand what's going on with people and and certainly and i'm guessing a lot of your podcast listeners are therapists um, well actually it's it's kind of a mix i mean there well, there may be some but it's actually more targeted towards the general population okay, yeah uh, so right right but i think you know in a in a more therapeutic or more dialogic or you're just dealing with your friends mm. which i think is actually the ideal uh, way to deal with what I call everyday suffering is actually with mm. your friends, right? And yeah. engaging them and helping them, helping you understand a problem situated um, and so on um, is that what you really want is someone to listen to your experience, mm-hmm. right? Not some category, right? And as soon as we put stuff in categories, it seems to me it almost automatically begins to kind of blind you to their experience, right? Mm. You, you kind of stop listening so I have a son that, you know, again, we don't wander into these things accidentally. Um, right. Though I began all this long before, but I have a son, my oldest son, who has a kind of autism spectrum thing. Mm. Um, I don't even quite really know what that means in the sense that it seems to me some of the things that we associate with autism, he displays and other things he's almost the opposite of. So it's a little unclear what that kind of category, but, mm-hmm. but for purposes of special ed and so on, you need categories and, and uh, he has that. But, um, but one of the things that we've been, I've seen other people is you put the category on and then you begin to relate to them through the lens of the category. Um, and, uh, right. And, and to kind of lose sight of who they are and what they might be good at and do and, and it doesn't mean you have to lose sight of their limitations, but at the same time, like, you know, who are they and what, what, uh, you know, how are they, you know, interacting in the world, what kind of capabilities they have, and, you know, with all that kind of stuff. And, um, uh, and, and so again, these, these kind of labels, one is depressed. I mean, the students I had interviewed often almost seek refuge in these diagnostic categories. Mm-hmm in a way that one of the criticisms I've made of, of them, of that thinking in that way is, is the way it then has a tendency for them to, to kind of stop thinking about their own, their immediate situation, right? You just say, oh, well, I've got, I've got depression. And usually that means right. we've got some physiological problem, some imbalance, some misfiring, miswiring, whatever, you know, the latest theory is. Um, and then you stop kind of paying attention to 
the immediate circumstances you're in, the kind of pressure you're under, for instance, or mm. right, or the, or you know, you you lose touch with your emotions. Um, so those all seem to me kind of um, problems that are kind of related in a way to that that kind of categorizing. Uh, yeah, uh, of people and and not. I think I argue that we need to understand, not explain people. Mm. Um, we, we would do, <laughs> the categories are, are meant to be some kind of explanation, but I, right, I they're meant to define. They're meant to um, they're meant to label people and, and kind of um, identify and, and and for some people it, it it that's what it ultimately becomes. It becomes an identity. I am depressed. I am anxious. I am bipolar. Right, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, I am ADHD, and and that's just so limiting, right? It really, like you're saying, it really just limits the full human experience, the full personhood of who that individual is. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. You see uh, clients. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you do you diagnose them? I do. I don't. I don't diagnose everyone. Um, it, it, this is actually really. I'm glad you brought that up. This is. This has really been an interesting transition for me as I just recently transitioned from northern Colorado. I'm based out of Colorado and just recently transitioned from a private practice up there where we accepted insurance and insurance requires most. Let me let me clarify. Most insurances require uh, a diagnosis within that first initial consultation, that first intake appointment, Um, most, if not all and whereas if you go into where i'm currently at which is a private practice as well but it's just private pay insurance which comes with its own pros and cons right um but because we're not accepting insurance we're not confined to we have to provide a diagnosis right and so i remember you know just not even too long ago when i was working at this other private practice i um always felt pretty uncomfortable at times because I had to provide this diagnosis in order for insurance to reimburse uh, my clients for their for their sessions. And there were times where it's like, okay, you know, I'm just going to give them the most accurate I can, even if I don't think it's if it's truly fitting. And and other times it it was, you know, even with where I'm currently at, I have given a few diagnoses. Um, And it, it really does bring up the question of why right? Why, what's the importance of the diagnosis? Um, and, you know, for me, it's a lot about relating it to treatment planning, right? If we can give a general idea of what's going on with their experience, then we can provide a better treatment plan of how we're going to be able to best support them. Um, but sometimes that's just not needed. You can still have a treatment plan. You can still um, support this individual the best you can. Um mm-hmm even if, if they don't have a diagnosis. Right, right. And I, 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 I ask in part, not big, again, because I'm necessarily against that practice. Mm-hmm. I can see, you know, you need a billing code. Right. <laughs> and so on. But, but the way in which it does seem like people, now I'm thinking not so much of the therapist who may then give it for the purpose of billing and then otherwise make little reference to it. But the way in which people themselves seem to kind of hold on to those categories in ways that, again, again, you, it's understandable. I don't, I don't know. Um, but at the same time, again, the, 
how it kind of then limits what what you can see, what you can mm. think about your experience, the way other people then might change the way they relate to you. Um, because now, you know, one of the things I noticed um, in the interviews I did for the Chemically Imbalanced book was the way in which people would talk of, like about their friends or their family and how they sort of supported them initially, right, to, to initiate help seeking, um, to go to a doctor. But then mm -hmm. it seemed like once they went to the doctor, and often they would get like a, a drug, um, right. that then family and friends just like disappear from the story, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, they're like sympathetic or something like that, but they seem no longer in a position to help, right? That we no they no longer talk about their problems with those people. Now I'm, I've got, you know, I've got my diagnosis, I, I'm depressed and, and that again, had a, had a whole set of meanings attached to it. Um, right. That seemed to exclude, you know, from, from my point of view, it would seem to me the very people who might be, mm. you know, really positioned to, to really help somebody, right? That, oh, um, you're 100% right. Not I mean, necessarily a doctor or, or, or just give me, if I can give one more example. Yeah, please. Yeah, study drug ads, which are literally mm. fascinating things. Um, and uh, I wrote um, one, it was one of my, those Psych Today columns. Right. In the blog about comparing ads from the 1960s with current ads for psychotropic drugs. Of course, the one in the 60s were in medical journals because they didn't mm -hmm. have direct-to-consumer advertising. And now the ads now I was looking at were, were consumer ads in you know, popular publications or on TV. And, and uh, the way in which in the 60s, people are always pictured in a context, right? Uh, often, mm. you know, say they're, um, if especially like a man or a woman, the men were always pictured in some kind of work context. And the women were almost always portrayed in some kind of domestic context, right? Right. And they're, whatever it was they were experiencing, whether it was Ritalin ads for low energy <laughs> before they were giving it to kids, uh, you know, they would, and so you'd see some businessman who's, you know, who's clearly not succeeding because he doesn't have enough, you know, sort of get up and go. Um, and Ritalin is a good stimulant for that. And or you'd see mm. a mother in some domestic thing, kind of overwhelmed by these domestic responsibilities and kind of trapped, if you will. Um, and so they need a, some Valium uh, or, you know, the tranquilizer to help them in that, that context. And then the current context, though, there's never any context, right? The person is an isolated figure. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, and what I wrote about was an ad for the drug antidepressant Pristique, um, and it's a wind-up doll. And in the, in the before picture, you know how the ads work before and after. In the before picture, it's like a wind-up doll whose, whose spring has wound down, mm -hmm. right? And it's in so this not moving. It's like a woman, her arms are stiff, she's slightly mm -hmm. bent, like a toy, right? And there's a big wind-up thing on the back of it. Right. But there's there's no family around her. Nothing. She's just this isolated figure. And of course, the implication is supposed to be that she has some chemical problem in her brain. Right. So there, there's no but there's no context of any kind. There's never no, never nothing. She she actually looks a little like a hospital patient or something. Mm. And then you see the after picture. She's rejoined her family. Right. But what I found interesting is the family is not with her in her sadness or her despair. In the before. Experiencing. 
they're somehow waiting for her at some safe distance, mm. frankly, because in some of them, they almost look a little afraid of her um, in the women's, you know, women's ones, um, you know, and so on. And it, again, it had that same kind of feeling like the people that are close to you are not going to be of any help to you, right? Once you, you kind of have an official mental disorder or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, until you have a diagnosis, until you have yourself medicated and can have some degree of control over your symptoms, your family's not going to be able to support you or be a part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. That seems to me like really wrong. I oh, yeah. That's exactly who can, I mean, assuming you have a family and have people. Right. Around, you know, obviously not everyone has that, but, but mm. if you do, it would seem to me cutting those people off. Yeah. Rendering them kind of irrelevant. Um, seems to be mm. a serious problem if you want, you know, in terms of just helping people flourish. Right, right. It it does make me wonder, though, like how much of that is true in people's lives. You know, I, th I think of going back to the article you wrote around ADHD, and um, I thought it was super interesting, just your thoughts about how um, specifically with ADHD, when we, you know, prescribe medications, provide, not we meaning me, but you know, when providers and doctors are prescribing medication for ADHD, it's it's less about, uh, it, it can be less about actually helping the kid and managing their symptoms and more about, I think, I don't remember the exact words used, but like creating like a docile, um, you know, individual, a docile kid who is more manageable for everybody else in his life. Right, right, mm. right. And, um, you know, and there, there's a there's a history around ADHD and thinking about it. Of course, ADHD itself dates only to 1980. So right. Prior categories, right? Um, mainly around being hyperkinetic or or overactive, and that mm -hmm. was central. Um, and that went by different names and so on. And but again, you know, drug ads from the 60s around kids, the problem child, and so on, were really about controlling children um, and it in somewhat explicitly in those terms well the meaning of ADHD has continued to morph and change um, in the executive functions version of it detention's not no longer even a central concern not only yeah, is I... activity left behind but attention is left behind right um, and now you move to something like you're not an optimizing person you're not the sort of person who's making kind of long-term plans and is systematically moving through the world to achieve your goals. Okay. Now I, I still think that's an unusual kid who does that actually does that. Um, it's not clear to me when, when Russell Barkley or somebody defines normal, mm -hmm. how many kids are actually in that category? Cause I right. can't imagine it's that large. Um, mm. <laughs> I mean, how many kids at 12 years old, you know, have a life plan, right? That they're somehow denying themselves and sort of systematically. But so ADHD has come to mean a lot like that. Um, uh, but it's still about control, right? It's still about kids that aren't prioritizing school in the way somebody else wants them to, right? Now being, now being put on a medication, right? To kind of focus them and press them forward. Mm. Um, to do that and um and again i it, you know and, and maybe one other point i guess is just it seems like 
Um, we keep changing things in our society to benefit the strong, right? Again, my own kids, I have three children, they're adopted. Each two of the three have some, some um, you know, kind of handicapped. Um, and the third one, not exactly, but kind of. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and maybe his are more like common, common mm. young adult problems um, than that is sleep. But, but anyway, the point is just that, right, the, the ability to kind of na navigate this world is it gets just more and more complicated and, and, um, and just the sheer paperwork, um, mm. the, the, the ability to manipulate screens and do all these things and, and, uh, and, and manage money that's not like real money. It's, it's ones and zeros on a computer and so on. It just gets harder and harder. Um, and it strikes me as more and more people can't manage it, right? And I do think those are a lot that we end up diagnosing that they're, they don't have a, there's nothing unusual about them, right? Mm. They're just not the type A sorts, you know? I mean, if you read Russell Barkley, he's a, maybe you know that name, he's a very- I saw um, him when in your article. ADHD yeah. Guy. yeah, and he's the, the executive function theory and all that. Yeah, and, you, uh, you keep his, mentioning that, the executive function theory. Would you mind explaining just briefly what that is for my audience? Well, the, this is, um, uh, I, I think Barclay is one of the originators of this idea. And, um, and the, the idea is that what you have, what he sees as the common denominator of kids who are being diagnosed with ADHD um, is not that they have a, an attention kind of pathology. I think it's a why deficit. I think almost everybody now recognizes that, that even a kid with ADHD can pay attention to what they're motivated to pay attention to. Mm, I can yeah. play video games all day and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. So so then the question is, well, what is their problem? And and his argument is is around kind of being impulsive, not not being able to have a goal and then kind of that, that's, and, and executive functions are supposed to be controlled by the frontal lobes of the brain. Right. The prefrontal which are around the, do the dopamine receptors. Mm -hmm. uh, again, a lot of this a lot of the definitions of ADHD have largely been kind of drug-induced, if you will. So you work yeah. backward from the interpretation of the drug to what the problem mm. is, right? So you have a, the, what the drug is doing is addressing right. executive functions. Because um, most of the drugs are focused on increasing the dopamine levels. Um, yeah, and, and right. how does that help? Well, mm. in this theory, it helps because um, what it makes you is a more self-optimizing person, someone who can who can delay gratification, right? Who can set a goal, who can be focused on the right things versus the wrong things, right? The right things, and then, right? And so they sort of successfully, right? Um, which is exactly kind of our picture of the autonomous um, young person is somebody who can, who can plan, they can, you know, build their resume to get into the good college and, you know, sort of do all these things and, and, um, and so those who are normal, if you will, who are neurotypical, apparently do all those things. Mm. Um, and anybody who can't or doesn't want to or is unmotivated to do those things, um, those then are the ones who get labeled. One in five high school age boys have an ADHD diagnosis. Wow. Um, and there's an ex they're exploding the yeah. use of ADHD, the diagnosis of, I don't talk about these in articles because they're focused on kids, but 
-hmm. You know, the fastest growing use of a drug is Adderall by 20 something, especially women. Mm. Um, and, uh, and my hunch is they're having the same problem that, that high school age boys are, which is mm -hmm. that now you're out in the work world, you're looking at spreadsheets in your cubicle all day and you're like, what the hell? Right. Why am I doing yeah. this? What's this got to do with me? I mean, imagine that 12 year old boy or one of my kids in school. I'm like, why am I here? What's this got to do with me? Why am I doing this? You know, et cetera. My hunch mm. is that that now affects adults as well who are. Yeah. Please. Anyway, How I much... probably have gotten away from your question somehow. No, no, this is really interesting. <laughs> it it, it kind of brings up this question of like how much is actually quote unquote wrong with you or is is wrong in your brain or wrong in in you know your body and how much of it is actually just maybe your environment you know how much of it is the fact that you're sitting in an office all day like you just said at a cubicle looking at a computer screen all day and that's just that, that's not going to help anybody's attention nobody can stay attentive to that right, 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 exactly. well some can that's just it you keep narrowing who can mm. uh, some people can sit at a computer all day yeah, that's fair. Right? Yeah. You know, again, think of think of things on a bell curve, mm -hmm. right? Well, there's always somebody who can do certain things. And it feels to me like our society, the way it's going, is that just more and more people are on the two ends of the curve and yeah. are, you know, that normal is getting shrinking, right? That to be normal is some child who can who can think about school and their future and how they have to get a college degree. Right. I have an article from the New York Times here that asks about your first, is your first grader college ready? Right. Wow. It was about some school district that would take kids, first graders to local colleges. Right. And the kids are all like wearing, you know, it was in North Carolina. So some had like Duke you know, t-shirts on or North Carolina t-shirts on and so on. Or they're already like thinking about this and so on, um, you know, et cetera. And it was like, wow, what, the hell? I mean, um, so those expectations, when you ratchet up those expectations that you should be able to do that and so on, it seems to me mm -hmm. just more and more people can't do it. Not because there's anything wrong with them. They're just different sorts of human beings. Right? Yeah. We, we, human beings come in all kinds of flavors and sizes and, and bell curves, right? Mm. Right. From all the way from, you know, extremely shot, extremely outgoing. Right. It's, there isn't one personality type. There's a whole right. spectrum of personality types. And if you begin to kind of pathologize, not directly, mm. but indirectly. Right. You make everything so that you have to be outgoing. For instance, you put everybody into a situation in which they have to be outgoing. Then you're going to then you're going to pathologize some people. Right. Because mm. they just that's not who they are. And, Right. I had all kinds of people I interviewed who thought they had social anxiety disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Simply because they're not as outgoing as the people around them. And that, and rather than see that as just, well, that's one, we, we have different personalities. Yeah. Humans come in different types, right? They, mm -hmm. they this, would, this would be a kind of self-pathologizing. Yeah. They go to the doctor and say, you know, I need a drug. I've, I've got a disorder. And, and again, that kind of language seems to me to, to miss the miss the environment miss like, right well, what is it why do you think that in the first place right miss I, all the other factors that play a role in into that line of thinking yeah yeah and and mm. uh, maybe it's okay to be what you're like maybe, yeah. maybe why, why not that mm. um and again it may be 
you know, again, we have this kind of ideology of everybody should be able to do everything, um, right? So yes, you're right. If you have a lot of stage fright, then I wouldn't go into work that requires you to be on stage all the time. Sure. That, that used to be a perfectly fine thing to say. Now, now people want to think, oh, well, gee, you're limiting somebody's potential or something like that. And it was like, yeah, well, but really, um, you know, I, I interviewed a young woman in my book, um, the Chemical Imbalance book, who's, you know, on a drug, she decided she wants to be a college teacher, right? But she's like terrified of standing up in front of people. So she's, she hopes she can do it on a drug, hmm. right? It doesn't come natural to her. So she hopes she can simulate an outgoing personality with the drug. Yeah. Um, and what, do you, what do you think I'm, that says? It's not going to work. I, you know, I, I didn't tell her that in the interview, but I just thought, you know, it's really, yeah. it's, it, it, you can't really, you, you, they're trying to simulate this stuff with drugs. Just, mm. you know, it doesn't really work. And the people I've interviewed who are on drugs, who hoped for those kind of things, if they'd been on the drug long enough, had come to kind of, you know, it wasn't that they didn't like the drug, say, or want to go off it necessarily, but they did really ratchet down their expectations, right? Mm. That even on the drug, you're still kind of sad. You're still, you're not, it, it doesn't really change your personality in the way that you might have hoped. Right. So those, those, those hopes tend to be kind of dashed. Um, yeah. Uh, well, that, that is interesting, though, like, you know, thinking of that one example of, of the lady who wanted to be a teacher, but but couldn't really do it without being on medication. Like, what, what do you think that speaks to? Is that was that just like a personal dream of hers? Like, this is something that she wanted to do and like had hopes and dreams and like, this is this is it for me? Or was it more of like, and it's hard because we can't, you know, again, there's just so many factors that probably went into this, but yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is it more of something that was like a societal pressure of like, well, all my friends are going into education and that's what I want to do? Or what, what were you kind of noticing when yeah, you interviewed yeah. this lady? Well, she had, um, uh, well, so she'd been shy all her life. Hmm. And, um, and, and, and she had initially, I think, kind of agreed with that. Her parents thought that teachers at school used to say that you know she's kind of withdrawn and she should be more outgoing in class or doesn't raise her hand enough and you know that kind of stuff right. stuff shy people are used to hearing um frankly and um uh and then in like college again you begin to kind of feel somewhat uh this yeah, at a disadvantage that you're not outgoing uh, especially you go to big parties and stuff like that Again, most of the kids I know that shy just don't do that stuff, mm -hmm. right? If you did, right? If, and um, and uh, and then she, um, and then I think she just stayed in school long enough, and then she went to like graduate school. That that she was like, that, I mean, that's what if you go for a PhD, you, you, just to teach. I mean, that was sort of mm, the right. It felt to me like she had just stayed in school, um, and then. And then decided like, okay, now this this is what the environment's about, right? This is what people mm -hmm. do who get these oh, kind of degrees. Gotcha. And so then, okay, I need to do this. So she, uh, and then and then really quite intentionally says, you know, I think I I need some help here. Mm. Uh, and she go, goes gets the 
gets a diagnosis, which it seems to be quite easy. And, you know, I don't, you know, you're talking to people, you're not talking to the doctor they saw, so you don't never quite right. sure what they're telling you how much of it's, but the way they tell it, say, is that it's very easy to go in and tell the doctor, look, here's can my be. struggles. Yeah. Doctor sees, yeah, I can see that's a problem. Try this, you know, start some on a medication and, mm-hmm. and, um, and so on. And then she noticed an immediate change. She was suddenly talking up in class. And even though she's, <laughs> the funny part was she says things like, she'll blurt stuff out, um, you know, kind of thoughtlessly on the drug right so the, the drug does have an impact on you right right and um but she didn't really see that, that as a problem because she thought well you know at least i'm i'm, mm. I'm active now uh, you know being and, vocal and so on and again i think it gave her a kind of hope that she could in effect have a different personality mm-hmm. right that that the one she had actually wasn't her real personality her real personality which everyone has on this field, the neurotypical all have an outgoing personality. So if you're shy, it's because something, you know, usually neurochemical is preventing you from having the normal neurotypical experience, mm. which is outgoing. Right. And again, this is one of the ways in which the, especially the psychiatric talk, they map social norms onto the brain. Yeah. Right? So that for Russell Barkley, a normal kid, Right, a normal thirteen-year-old can plan a future, and then begin to pursue those goals in a systematic way, and that kid will delay gratification. Who will make school their priority? Who will recognize, right, what matters in this world and what doesn't? They'll be exceedingly uh, congenial and easy to get along with. They'll never rock the boat, mm-hmm. right? Again, and I get these ideas not because he ever says anything like that. But because it's the flip side of what's pathologized, right? And um, so it seems to me like, uh, and once you put that on the brain, then if you're any other way, your problem is you have a brain problem, right? Mm. Not just that you're a different kind of person or that the environment is requiring something of you, you know, that you can't really deliver. Right. It's just not, not in yeah. your, your capacities. Yeah. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of room for individuality and, and differences in our culture. It seems very bilinear. It's either this or it's that. Um, you fit into this and this is good or you don't. And that means that must be bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. That just seems like a broken system. Yeah. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. ironic because we think of ourselves not as rigid and, mm-hmm. and you know, narrow, but as tolerant and let every everything hang out. I mean, we, we, we as a society seem to imagine mm-hmm. ourselves as being really um, easygoing and, you know, big on difference. <laughs> right. And then in the actual experience, it seems to me, is that it just moves toward a kind of homogenizing, mm-hmm. right? It's okay as long as you're all kind of the same person, as long as you all get along in the same way. Right. Or you're emotionally intelligent and, you know, think of all those things. They, again, they just require an incredible amount from people. And again, a lot of people, you know, some percentage of people can do that, right? They can right. be, right? But there's just some people that can't. And mm. um, they just, they can't, right? It's just, not, they're not on the, yeah. the thing is. And, and, and all of those okay. things are ways. 
fail on different of these aspects, mm -hmm. right? I've never met anyone, right, who can just can do can do it all, right? Right. <laughs> Everybody's unhappy about something, right? Some aspect of their life where they feel inadequate, that they're not able to kind of meet the norms because the norms are so hard to meet, right? And uh, uh, so, that, yeah, I, this is about our environment. It's about a world we live in. It's seems to me is um, we need to resist and that's why it's good that we can actually. right yeah and yeah kind of like what you're mentioning earlier and then also in your articles um there does seem to be almost like a draw to uh, some of the things we've been talking about things like diagnoses things like medications um you know i see this with my own sounds like you've seen this in your research where um, especially I see this a lot with adolescents who are in and they're like, oh, I think I have, uh, gosh, you know, something that's been really big is I think I have dissociative identity disorder and it's these kids coming in and I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. Like what's making you think that and, you know, talk about it and, and ultimately boils down to, well, you know, I saw this on social media. I saw this on the TV show. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was talking to friends about it. My friends who are also DID and have alters and, and all these different things. And it's like, they, there seems to be this draw. And it, it's not all that extreme, right? Where it is a very extreme illness, if that's the case, or condition. Um, but sometimes it's, it's more, quote unquote, mild things like ADHD or depression or anxiety. Yeah. And it, for me, it brings up this question of like, why do you want this, right? Like, what is the draw to being diagnosed with this, to getting on medication? Is it like a security issue of, you know, I'm struggling right now. I feel the weight of my experiences, whatever those might be. And to be able to have a name for it, to be able to take something that is supposed to take that away does that provide like a sense of security? Uh, mm -hmm. What I'm curious, like, what have you found in your research? What are you noticing on, on that side of things as far yeah, as yeah. this experience goes? Well, and, and what can I ask? It sounds is, is security the thing that you see? That's what I'm, that's kind of what I'm hypothesizing. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering is it's 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 a way of naming this unknown, right? There's these things that are going on. I'm feeling depressed, whatever that may mean. You know, it's it, what's really interesting to me is the more what we call, you know, the more extreme mental health conditions like dissociative identity disorder is very uh, it is very rare. And it's it's usually a result of a lot of trauma. Um, and a lot of not being able to deal with that trauma very well. So there's things like that. There's things like bipolar or schizophrenia. You know, I, I remember in particular, I had one client who uh, came in and almost every week it was something different. I think I'm DID. I think, um, and then, you know, I'll have to talk to them like, but you're not, you're not. And why do you want to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just seeing like the crestfallen, you know, face of like, oh God, like, was right and then coming in next week it's like okay you're right i don't think i am but i think i'm this instead and it's yeah i think it's this almost for for some again not for all but for some i wonder if it is a matter of feeling secure of being able to name and and put a label to their experiences that maybe before they're not able to label 
it's just so big of an unknown. And and the scary part is, is there just may not be a word to describe all of their experiences that, that feel overwhelming. Um, yeah, that's right. But it is interesting because I see it a lot, especially yeah. with adolescents, which is who I mostly work with nowadays. Right, right. Yeah, and I've had a number of, like in my Prozac culture, students have talked about how they're constantly, I'll claim, you know, ideas about stigma and so on, and they'll say, well, yeah, but, you know, on our TikTok and so on, people are talking like nonstop. Yeah. Being depressed or being anxious or, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. And they seem, they seem not worried about stigma at all. They seem to, you know, kind of hold it out like some kind of, uh, uh, you know, and, and just easily talk about it um, and so on without, without um, seemingly much concern. Um, right. I, would, uh, I think I have two thoughts about that. Um, one, I, I, I do think you're right about, um, I think because uh, in this environment, we're all feeling like we fail in different areas, mm. right? It's like, why are we failing? Um, Right. We, we live in a, a world where we're seemingly free to choose everything. Right. And then it's right. like, I'm free to choose everything. How is it I could be unhappy? Hmm. Right. There seems there's some paradox there. Right. Um, and uh, uh, so I think on the on the one hand, because everything seems to come back to us. Um, right. Then when things go wrong, these these diagnoses provide a certain kind of account for what's going wrong, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they explain. Yeah. Um, I was talking with my physician one time at my annual physical and he knows what I write about and so on. So we started talking about, he was telling me about how all the parents come in. Mm. He's, had, he's had a lot of parents come in and who took their kids Adderall and and then thought, oh, who like tried it. Yeah, who tried it. And then they were like, wow. Right, I must have ADHD too, right? Oh, because, because oh, they're I could get so, so much work done, it. and you know, etc. And, and or they've, you know, I always had problems, you know, focusing on this or that, or concentrating when, you know, all the interesting parts of a job are over, then I get kind of bored by it or whatever. And mm. man, with this, I could just power through on, the, on the Adderall. And then he's in this position where he's trying to convince them, as as I gather you've tried been, right? He's trying to convince them, no, no, you don't have. And these are successful people, by the way, you know, or not. Sure. You know, et cetera. But um, but I think certain kinds of and certainly I've had people say to me in interviews, right, that that it provides an explanation. Um, Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the drug ads for Stratera, which is a non-stimulant drug used for sometimes for for ADHD, they have one of their ads uh, from years ago um, that I used as a title of a recent article. Uh, was the explanation you've been looking for, hmm. all right? And I thought that 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 says a lot, right? Is you've been looking for an explanation. Been look, why is it I fail on this? Why is it I'm not as good as I think I should be? Why am I not as outgoing, right, as I think I should be? Um, why am I not living up to my potential, whatever that hmm. means? And um, so I do think they often provide explanations um, for people. Um, the other point that I wanted to make was that um, uh, it gets back to this idea that we're the choosers, mm, right? Is yeah. that 
um, everything kind of, you know, the old drug ads I was mentioning back in the 60s, at least they could point to role conflicts, right? Right. Say the, 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 the working woman who also has the, does the second shift and has to deal with kids and so on. So you can see stress in that environment. And then you just connect and just say, well, you know, maybe this drug can help you deal with that stress. Um, right. And so, it, it, but when you think about now, right, in which everything is a choice, what roles you take, whether you're a parent or not, these are all your own choices, or at least we presented to us in that right. way. Then, then it's like, well, what's going wrong, right? It, the, our social environment becomes kind of invisible to us, right? Or we imagine that that to be normal is to you know be outgoing or being a being type A and able to like some little accountant who can just keep track of everything and you know and or little Homo economicus you know who's just rationally calculating their future, you know can do all this sort of stuff and with the greatest of ease and and um, and so then when something goes wrong, right? You're, you're left like with no explanation. Like, well, what's, mm. what, what, you know, you, it's hard to, curiously enough, even the students I've met who are keenly aware of all the stresses in their environment, but somehow they never connected their own problems to those stresses, mm. right? It was always something's wrong with me, right? And if something's wrong with you, then, and it's not the stresses, then what is it, right? And that's, again, where, these explanations, especially the biological ones, seem to fill a need that it was like, oh, well, maybe my chemicals are just off. Mm, There's yeah. no evidence for that, by the way. But right. You know, I mean, these well, it is interesting. Like don't you don't really have any grounding. Yeah. They're, 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 I mean, we all think surely there must be some biological component, mm. you know, especially. But that's not always true. I mean, disorders. but it's not like yeah. we can actually show one. Right. I mean, you know, I, someone that came up to me. This is in the tens of thousands. And, you know, it's not like you can show one. It's not like you can show a neurobiological issue with ADHD. Right. Um, and even what, if you could, it, would, it always strikes me as like, well, maybe we're just showing different, the genetics of different parts of the bell curve. Mm. Right. I mean, presumably all our, our actions and personalities or, you know, different features of us have some genetic signature somehow, right? right. We really know what it is, but presumably, you know, because humans are different, they must be biologically different too. So mm. it isn't clear to me that even if you could show some difference, whether you're actually showing an abnormality or just another kind of human being, because there are no lesions and, and everybody recognizes mental illness is not associated with a lesion. And mm -hmm. I mean, that is some actual, you know, uh, injury to the brain. Right. So, so it's not injuries. So if there's no injuries, then, you know, again, what, what would the biology actually tell us? Would it tell us that right. there's something wrong or would it just tell us that humans come in different <laughs> right. shapes and forms, something, you know, we, we already knew. Uh, so anyway, um, sorry about that. Well, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, um, you know, when I was reading your articles and, and kind of doing my own research beforehand, it made me think of the fact that there there's research out there to support that medication, when it comes to depression, for example, medication alone is not more effective than either psychotherapy or psychotherapy in conjunction with medication. 
uh, those are shown to be more effective than just medication alone, which I find really interesting. And yet how many people out there are on medication and yet aren't doing counseling, aren't in relationship with other people, uh, aren't doing other things for treatment outside of medication. Right, right. Well, and, and there's a kind of, you can see where there's a certain logic. And people, again, people I interviewed often draw on this logic. If I have a chemical problem, that's really what the problem is. Right. Right. Then, then the drug is the thing. Mm-hmm. What is that talking have to do with a neurochemical problem. Right. Um, so there was a kind of logic to thinking that, right, if I've got a brain disorder, then what I need to do it is address the brain. You know, and the analogy, of course, is commonly with diabetes. Mm. Right? It's like, well, for diabetes, you don't go in and talk to somebody. Right. Uh, though you, you might in terms of your diet or things like that, but rather sure. you, you take the insulin. And so these kinds of analogies are really common um, mm. in psychiatry and people use them and so on. And, and, yeah. and but I maybe that's that, part of the issue. Maybe we need to change the conversation around things like diabetes. Like maybe you should be going to talk to somebody if you, if you're struggling with diabetes, <laughs> right? Well, and maybe you are. I, I just use that. Yeah. You know, type two diabetes, of course, in fact, is, right. has to do a lot with your diet and things like that. But, but the analogy was, if if, if you have a biological problem, you deal with it biologically. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, and, I hear what um, you're saying. And I think yeah. that's that. In, in in my book, chemically imbalanced, I'm I'm not against drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm really against is these kind of biological explanations. Yeah, because um, drugs. To... I, I think drugs. My my again just in as an amateur reading the literature um, is that if you do use a drug, use it for a short term Mm. for acute, for acute situations, right? If you're crying all day and a drug can help you stop or you can't sleep and the drug can help you sleep. Okay. Uh, That seems like a, you know, a a practical use of a medication. Um, But then the question is what's really going on with you, right? What's, Mm. what's the problem, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that, that's going to be a question. That's going to be something you dialogue with. It's something you Mm. interpret. What's, what's going on in my experience? Why, uh, you know, those why questions have to be asked. And I feel like with, you get on medication, you stop asking the why questions because you think you have an answer. Oh, it's just biology. Right. Um, and, uh, but the why questions, it seems to me are really crucial if what you want to do is actually get better you want to change the situation or but why don't we just kind of end you know what are what are some last words of wisdom um if you could pass on to my audience just from what you've learned and just from what we've been talking about today well uh um uh i think that i think maybe the the main thing uh, i guess if i had to say one thing it would be something like um uh, helping people build more friendships and social networks that they can rely upon and not not and actual ones right not not online networks and so on um it seems to me like a lot of our struggle come back to the fact that we're in some sense disconnected from one another um, and not, you know, kind of 
in a certain kind of genuine relationships. Even the college, especially the girls, will often talk about their friends in that kind of frenemy uh, way that they can't really talk about their experience for fear of appearing not to be perfect or appearing not to have it all together. And and um, and so the, the kind of cultivating of close relationships um, with friends um, it can help it be a certain kind of protection um, from the kind of pressures and stuff that kids are are living under and experiencing and and that, again that kind of rampant sense of inadequacy um, it seems to me that you know in part can help if you have at least people around who don't think you're inadequate who, who can help you you know kind of see what your your value and how you're you're worthwhile and you're not a loser and all the kind of messages um, the kids get. Right. Um, so I, I guess that would be it. And, and um, you know, both family, friendships, um, uh, and, and so on. And, and professional help if it's needed. But, but it seems like a lot of these things don't have to get to a professional if they could, if they could just be addressed within one's relational network and, you know, I, I say to people, it's like, well, you know, I've never been to a psychologist in my life. And I don't anticipate being, not because I don't have any problems, but because I have friends. Uh, right. You know, and, and when things get hard, right, that's who I talk to. Um, not just my spouse, but also other male friends um, and so on who get together and who, you know, you can kind of cultivate a relationship that's close and that you can talk about, you know, stuff that's it's going wrong or work, you know, things, uh, problems and stuff like that, that that's mm. anyway, that, that, <laughs> you know, I'm not a, I'm a sociologist. So there's a sociological answer is no, that's perfect. Yeah. Community. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, Hey, thank you so much, Dr. Davis. I really appreciate your time. And 